Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. This week, we're discussing seven new releases to the Warner Archive Collection, Jungle Lord, Strawberries, and Psychos. I think that about explains what you're going to hear. Starring Ron Ely, Christopher Plummer, Bud Court, George Sanders, Ingrid Bergman, Ann Southern, Fats Waller, Mr. Bojangles, and Cheetah, who is a chimp. First up, Edgar Rice Burroughs had a pretty good run 100 years ago. Not only did his first story, Princess of Mars, featuring John Carter, now a major motion picture, find its way to print, but his most famous creation, Tarzan, Lord of the Jungle, makes his first appearance as well. This week, we are pleased to present the complete first season of the 1966 television series Tarzan, divided into parts one and two. Dan, are you ready for Tarzan Tenniel? I've been ready for the Tarzan Tenniel my whole life, and I'm pleased we're able to contribute to it throughout the year. First up, uh, the Ron Ely TV Tarzan from the 60s is a really beloved memory for thousands of children who are now, of course, adults. But also, more importantly, it hasn't been seen by many for years and years and years. And it's not just worthy of rediscovery, it's worthy of just full enjoyment, especially for its place in Tarzan's motion picture and television history. George, how did this version of Tarzan find its way to TV? Well, so to Dan's point, we should point out, this this was on NBC for two years, 1966 to 68, which is a relatively brief run, only two seasons. And yet it did go into syndication and was rerun for decades, although it hasn't been seen for decades. But there are generations that watched it in reruns that were unaware that there were only two seasons. And we have to mention that our first uh, season released, which is in two parts, is in two parts because it contains 31 episodes. When a series is done nowadays, it's 13 episodes, like Mad Men, or, or, or 22 episodes, 23 episodes for a sitcom. But 31 hours in one season, that's an enormous amount of work. And that translates into a lot of programming, which we can now enjoy on this DVD release. How long is each episode? They're about 50 minutes because there were even less commercials that, back then. Dan, um, is there anything special in any of these episodes that you thought was worth checking out? I mean, the first thing that would come to mind is the enormous quality of the guest stars. I mean, this really was a, a golden age for, for dramatic television in terms of uh, motion picture and television actors making weekly appearances on these weekly dramatic shows. And, you know, the caliber of the guests on Tarzan is, is A1. I mean, and there's other guests who had yet to really make their mark. Off the top of my head, uh, you in the first season, you get to see uh, Nichelle Nichols before Star Trek was really to take off. There's standard great supporting players like Woody Strode. Uh, Maurice Evans uh, has a recurring character, as does the great Julie Harris. And wasn't a former Tarzan on here, too? Yes, Jock Mahoney. Sally Field's stepfather. George, can you name, <laughs> can you name all the, the movie and TV Tarzans in chronological order I, I, for me? I, I, I probably would miss some of the silent <laughs> ones, but the first Tarzan was Elmo Lincoln in 1918. And then there was somebody in the 20s that I don't even know... The most famous Tarzan of all, of course, was Johnny Weissmuller, who did the role in Tarzan the Ape Man at MGM in 1932. And MGM had their own series of Tarzans, which we have available on the WB shop as part of our Tarzan collection, Volume 1 and Volume 2. And Johnny Weissmuller made six films at MGM, and then six films with producer Saul Lesser at RKO, 
We'll talk about Sal Lester in the middle. But while Weismuller was making his films, there were other Tarzan movies that were a byproduct of Edgar Rice Burroughs' own company. And uh, Buster Crabbe was Tarzan. Uh, Herman Bricks, who later became Bruce Bennett and was Mildred Pierce's first husband in our wonderful movie, Mildred Pierce. Oh, there was uh, the Tarzan radio show that Edgar Rice Burroughs yes. produced, which featured his own daughter playing Jane. Glenn Morris was a Tarzan and a film that was released by Fox. So there were lots of other Tarzans, but Weismuller held court at MGM and then moved to RKO under Saul, Le excuse me, under Saul Lessard's stewardship and then was replaced by Lex Barker and the Lex Barker Tarzan movies are available from the Warner Archive collection as are the Tarzan movies starring Gordon Scott who is the next Tarzan and then Jock Mahoney as Matt mentioned earlier was Tarzan and then Mike Henry became the big screen Tarzan and Saul Lesser, who owned the screen rights to make movies under the property, sold his production company, Banner Films, to a guy named Cy Weintraub. And Weintraub was not only the producer of the later Tarzan films, but more importantly, and more relevant to our discussion today, was the producer of this television series. So he was the guy that said, hey, it's time to bring Tarzan to television, and it's time to bring everybody to Mexico, because that's where they film these shows. Mm -hmm. I think it's important when people see them, the production quality is really quite remarkable for an hour-long color series and part of the reason why it looks so good is they they spent quite a lot of money and that's why they had to go to Mexico they also had wonderful guest stars and used stock footage from the features so a lot of the shots of uh, when people see the DVDs they'll notice a lot of shots of the animals look different than the shows themselves and I think but overall it adds to the production value when we hit 100 Tarzans, 100 people playing Tarzan, that'll be a different kind of Tarzantennial. Indeed. Because yes. we might be close. But this is the beginning of the Tarzantennial. So we have Tarzan collections galore from the feature films right up through Mike Henry, through Warner Archive Collection, now season one of the wonderful television series, which we're all excited about. And yes, season two will be available hopefully before Christmas. And we're hoping also to bring the Tarzan Filmation Animated Series to DVD as well. So there's lots of Tarzan activity within the Warner Archive Collection from all of us to all of you. All right, well, we're going to move from the chaos of the jungles to the chaos of the Americans cities of uh, and campuses of the, I guess, 1970 with the Strawberry Statement. This kind of seems very relevant today, this film, because uh, of uh, the unrest and the Occupy movements, and, and it's almost like a, a postcard from, from that time period. Dan, why do you feel this message like people should see it today? Aside from the fact that it's interesting that the more things change, the more they stay the same, the Strawberry Statement had a very unique genesis. It started out as a non-fiction book about the campus protest movement at Columbia University. Strawberry Statement, Notes of a College Revolutionary, I believe is the title, uh, was a bestseller at the time and provided a rather unique, rather jaundiced viewpoint on what was going on in the, cam in the campus protest movement. But Hollywood got its hands on it and suddenly couldn't quite figure out what to do with it. And what we were left with is this very interesting film uh, starring Bruce Davison and Kim Darby and the always great Bud Court about campus protests set at a very fictional university with a perhaps more over-the-top police reaction than was entirely normal at the time, although, of course, there were some horrible incidents. And this was made, I believe, if, if my aging memory serves me correctly, I believe this was made before Kent State. Yeah, it was yeah. released two months before. Yeah. So that that's it's just eerie. going from my memory as a child and not, you know. But I, as a kid, I was very aware of all this stuff going on and what were those 
you know, the, what were the students going and uh, doing and uh, was didn't want to grow up and, and get killed in a war. So uh, as, a, as a youngster, I was very much aware, and I couldn't see the strawberry statement because it was rated R. But I certainly was interested in that, so I had to wait till I grew up to see it, and now people can see it on DVD for the first time. And speaking of the rating, I believe the Warner Archive Collection release has some unique extra content. That's right. It's two discs. It's a two-disc set. And what, what is on the two different discs? Well, it's a very interesting situation because the international version of the film was actually four minutes longer than what was released domestically. So when we went back, we had to remaster this film in order to release it because we didn't have a 16 by 9 presentation. And when we went back to the negative, we found that the original negative was shorter than the international version. We didn't want to release the international version in the new master because we would have worked from fourth generation elements. Yet, the VHS tape we circulated 20 years ago was this longer version, albeit in the incorrect aspect ratio, open mat. So what we've done here is offered the consumer a way to see what the longer version is as a bonus disc in this DVD release. So it's four by three open mat, but it is the international version. And the new remastered version on disc one is the theatrical cut as seen in this country. So people can notice the differences and decide for themselves. And the best part about it is there's no additional cost. What's also great is that this will keep rabid fans from occupying our offices. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Occupy Burbank is, is not something we want to uh, uh, encourage. The soundtrack to it is incredible. Phenomenal. I mean, it's it's like, a, it, it's so, and it fits so perfectly in context with its time. Because, like, nowadays we hear all these same songs, but it's like classic rock radio. But when you see it, uh, these songs, and you see it in the context of the, the student movement, it, it really just brings it all alive and brings it all home. Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young contributed songs to the soundtrack of this film, which are now classic, but at the time were brand new. Oh, wow. uh, and I think that's part of uh, the overall experience. It, it feels very, it's odd to watch a film that's 42 years old that certainly doesn't feel 42 years yeah, old. Yeah. Uh, we can watch films from the 90s that feel far less relevant and far more aged and dated certainly films from the 80s. So you can definitely say that. <laughs> well, any any film in the Warner Archive that has sculling. <laughs> <laughs> Our next film, The Spiral Staircase, is from 1975 with Jacqueline Bissett and Christopher Plummer, and it also takes place on a 70s, and I have air quotes here, campus, but of a completely different kind. What's going on in Christopher Plummer's mother's mansion? Well, it, it, it's an asylum of sorts. It's for the purpose of rehabilitation. It's an institute. Yes, well, the British call them institutes. And uh, and well, what's 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 going on? Well, I wouldn't want to spoil too much, but uh, a young lady who had a horrible trauma and now cannot speak, played by Jacqueline Bisset, is under the attention of a mysterious killer who is stalking women with various afflictions. She's returned to the institute for additional therapy and also perhaps for safety, but she might have gone to the very wrong place. How was this film released? Was it, it was international only? It did not get a theatrical release in this country, and it was a remake of a 1946 classic that was produced by David O. Selznick. And Warner Brothers made arrangements with ABC, which had purchased Selznick's library in the 60s before he passed away, to do this remake. 
And I guess the powers that be decided it wasn't uh, commercially viable for a U.S. theatrical release, so it went straight to television here in this country. Uh, a lot of Warner Brothers films that didn't get domestic releases ended up on the CBS Late Movie. Before the uh, days of Le David Letterman and CBS having success in Late Night, they had Late Movies as a network feature. I'm guessing, I can't say for sure, but... Uh, I'm guessing that, that, that this could have ended up on the CBS Late Movie. It also could have been on ABC. I don't remember. But the point is there wasn't a theatrical release for the film. But it did have a viable life after its initial uh, making and has now finally arrived on DVD through us. And we're delighted to bring it out. I also want to point out that Elaine Stritch, a Broadway favorite performer who uh, became an expatriate and went to London for many years. She's in this film, too. And uh, she's a hale and hearty uh, first lady of the stage and screen that now lives in New York, and she's in her 80s. But uh, this is one of her rare big screen appearances. The film also features uh, what I would call genre favorites, John Philip Law and Sam Wanamaker, both accomplished character actors seen throughout a number of genre films. John Philip Law, most famous, of course, for Barbarella and Danger Diabolic, and Sam Wanamaker, just as an added side note, without his efforts, the Globe Theater in England wouldn't exist today. Well, there you go. And this is a pretty creepy film, and it really does have a out-of-time feel to it, and that probably comes from its, its, its origins, mm -hmm. uh, because, like, by the 1970s, not many people had a big staff in their creepy old house. and It's a very typical old dark house setup. Yeah. Yes. Which is surprising to see it uh, so late. But that's that actually kept, kept my interest because you knew something crazy was going on. And that's why it's ripe for rediscovery. And that's part of why we're here with the War Archive Collection. So I, I would have never I'm, seen it had we not been releasing <laughs> it myself. Any chance to spend time with Christopher Plummer is time well spent. <laughs> and especially after he just won the Oscar. Mm -hmm. I, I think I want to get a scholarship to that institute there so that, that I can I can learn something. Speaking of uh, psychotic killers, I like that. Rage in Heaven from 1941 is the real thing. It's a twisted psychological thriller with Ingrid Bergman, George Sanders, and Robert Montgomery. What makes this film so disturbing? I think one of the things that makes it disturbing, and Dan, you, you chime in here too, is that up until 1937 and his breakthrough performance in Night Must Fall, which is also a Warner Archive collection release, Robert Montgomery was the all-American leading man. And he was not comfortable being boxed into those kind of roles, wanted to stretch his kind of roles as an actor and started appearing in light comedies, but also things like Night Must Fall. And then this, Rage in Heaven, which is a deeply disturbing psychological thriller, and he plays a, a very unbalanced character in the movie and quite wonderfully. And this was also one of Ingrid Bergman's earliest American films, and she's quite breathtakingly beautiful in the film. For the curious, I would highly recommend checking out any of the Robert Montgomery movies available through the Warner Archive Collection, including the Robert Montgomery Collection. <laughs> uh, you will see that, that he was absolutely the most charming man and the most pleasant light leading man but you, as soon as you see him take this dark side you realize why he perhaps fought so hard behind the scenes to get a chance to play these roles um, because he really was a very much well-rounded actor but when you see the light charming Robert Montgomery you can also see why it was so easy to typecast him because he was effortless at that. But so when he turns dark that, it's very that makes dark. it yes. you know, you're not suspecting it and then for George Sanders, even early on, was very, although of course he was the saint and the falcon, 
was also something of a more cynical, darker character, and he's played very much against Montgomery in this as as two halves of a of a pair. So he's the good guy in yes. this movie, which is odd because he usually played right. villains when he wasn't being the the saint or the falcon, but. Uh, Rage in Heaven is making its DVD debut through the Warner Archive Collection and is, in fact, making its home video debut. This film was never on VHS, so uh, this is a chance for people to own it. It's been remastered. It looks wonderful, and we're very excited to be able to bring it your way. So Joan of Paris from 1942 is another interesting example, but this is a dark wartime film. It's sort of designed to bring hope to the Allies. It's a, it's a propaganda film, but it's... Uh, it's it's I found it a little different, you know, than than other ones because it it has this it has this very dark tone to it. I mean, there are even shots in the sewers where somebody has this heroic, beautiful death. Uh, what's going on in Jones Paris? Well, uh, like a number of very excellent uh, films made at the time, uh, Hollywood is doing its own part of the war effort to shore up and help our allies. In Joan of Paris, the call goes out to the common man to help and assist. Uh, specifically in Joan of Paris, a barmaid finds herself the only hope for a squadron of stranded RAF pilots. It compares very favorably to other films of the time, like Jean Renoir's This Land is Mine with Charles Lawton, in which a school teacher also must come to the Allies. Uh, there's a series of films like this. Uh, Joan of Paris features uh, Michelle Morgan as Joan the barmaid, uh, and then a uh, Paul Heinrich is the leader of the Stranded Squadron and also something of a love interest for young Jones. And, of course, it's right before Paul Henry did Casablanca, which is, uh, and now Voyager, and, and really established himself at Warner Brothers as one of the studio's biggest leading men. Alan Ladd has a small but notable role in this film, and it's right before he did this gun for hire at Paramount and became a superstar. So there are lots of very important performances in this film. Dan mentioned This Land is Mine, which I'm happy to indicate to everybody is in the works from Warner Archive Collection as well. Hey. So uh, much to celebrate for Joan of Paris. I always uh, like to, when I look at films like this, see how evil the Nazis are. Anybody have any... I thought that these Nazis weren't I mean, when I watch a war movie, it's how, how evil are the Nazis. And these Nazis were pretty evil, but I almost felt like I might be able to outsmart them. Well, this is more of the, the bureaucratic menacing Nazi versus This the, is the early yeah, war Nazi. Yeah, yes. This is, they didn't know how truly how evil they were. How awful they were, they were yeah. Well, I think, like, just from a, as a contemporary point, when you, when you see movies with Nazis, you're like, whoa, it's Nazis. And these Nazis were like, oh, we'll watch you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was just my own one. Because, you know, Nazis were everywhere in 1942. It's and terrible. including in Panama Hattie, that's our next uh, film we're going to talk about. And it's an adaptation of Cole Porter's Broadway show about a Panama nightclub. But on the way to Hollywood, this version became different. Well, I think that's because Hollywood, and still to this day, unfortunately, in many cases, had and has a history of, of screwing up Broadway shows and not presenting them on the screen as originally intended. And in the 1940s, they would usually take the score that was written for the Broadway show, keep one or two songs, and write their own new songs. And Arthur Freed, who is considered the greatest producer of musicals of all time, he produced Singing in the Rain and The Bandwagon, American in Paris, Gigi. He won Academy Awards for Gigi and American in Paris. Uh, he also produced Mimi in St. Louis. He was starting out on his producing career at MGM 
when he acquired the rights to Panama Hattie for the studio, and Panama Hattie starred Ethel Merman on Broadway and Betty Hutton in a supporting role right before she became a movie star. Ethel Merman almost never got to recreate her stage triumphs on the screen. She didn't get to make the movie of Gypsy. She didn't get to make the movie of Annie Get Your Gun. And she didn't get to make the movie of Panama Hattie. And Southern, who was on fire at this studio as the star of the Maisie films, seemed perfect for this part. And Anne Southern had a background in musical comedy. So they thought that she would be perfect for the part and they built the film around her, and yet it was on the shelf after completion for over a year while they retooled it until they released it. So this was a troubled film. So what did they have to do to make it work? Well, there's a number of interesting elements to the retooling, which was quite successful when the film was finally released. It was a huge hit for the studio. But among the the elements that were added, uh, Red Skelton, his role was greatly enlarged. Um, perhaps most interestingly was uh, Lena Horne was added. It's her screen debut. It's a small part, but a very significant one. And this was done under the guidance of the legendary Vincenti Minnelli, who directed, I believe, all of the musical sequences in Panama Hat. All the new ones that were yeah. added in between the time that the, the Berry Brothers and Lena Horne did new musical sequences that were added, but the amount of additional material with Red Skelton was, as Dan just indicated, huge. In the midst of all of this, the U.S. entered World War II while the film was on the shelf. Mm. And the finale of the film is where everybody sings a song called The Son of a Gun Who Picks on Uncle Sam. And it's the whole cast singing right to the camera. And I think one of the interesting things is that you can see that they're slightly uncomfortable because it is a little awkward. But the film is filled with a lot of great Cole Porter songs, including Let's Be Buddies, which was written for the Broadway show, and opens with Ann Southern singing I've Still Got My Health, which was also written for the Broadway show and inserted back into the film after the retakes. So this was during Vincent Minnelli's uh, apprenticeship at MGM. We were learning the ropes to become a film director and eventually did direct Lena Horne and Red Skelton in 1943's I Dude It, which is part of the Warner Archive collection. So Panama Hattie is now making its DVD debut through Warner Archive collection in a new remastered version. And we know that fans of musicals and fans of Ann Southern will be looking forward to this release. And speaking of Ann Southern, we've got another one of hers for our last new release. We're going back to 1935 with Hooray for Love. Dan, hooray for this DVD? Absolutely. Hooray for Love is a charming film, very, very emblematic of its time, a light musical comedy with a very, very special added bit, which is an extraordinary performance from uh, Bill Robinson and Fats Waller, which must, must, must be seen by all. It makes it really uh, uh, one of the golden moments in celluloid history to see these two giants of 20th century uh, American entertainment. And Fats Waller's life was cut dramatically short. He died very young, so he made very few screen appearances. They both ironically did work uh, in 1942's uh, Stormy Weather at Fox, but um, I'm not remembering accurately at this moment whether they had any scenes together. I don't think so. I'm not sure. But I may regret this and remember say, how could you forget? But in any event, they were both in that wonderful all, all-star uh, film that uh, was made at Fox. But this film brings them together where they really strut their stuff. The score is by uh, Jimmy McHugh and Dorothy Fields, 
who wrote many wonderful songs like I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And the song they wrote for this film is called I'm Living In A Great Big Way. And it's a big deluxe RKO production number that has as much gloss and appeal as some of the same kind of things they were doing with Astaire and Rogers at the same time. So Hooray for Love's DVD releases cause for celebration for musical fans. And that's why we're delighted to bring these two Anne Southern films out at the same time. So, George, what's your favorite release this week? What would you most recommend to people? Well, what I, a, this is a personal. I, I would say, uh, you know, that's like saying which one of your children which one do of your, you love which the Which one most? of your children do you love the most? Well, I, I got to say that I, I, I kind of love them all because I'm invested in all of them because I worked on all of them, as did you guys. We, I know. We I, love them all. I think the thing that is most exciting uh, for me, if I had to pick one, I would say it's Rage in Heaven because... For a film like that to not have come out on video cassette and to have such incredible performances and the master looks so wonderful. This film had not been remastered in 23 years. So it's really uh, a moment for film fans to celebrate a fine, fine film with three great actors really at their youthful peak. And it's quite engaging for a motion picture that is uh, 71 years old. It's hard Oof. to Hard to hard to believe, but true. I think we always try to have a nice lineup for everybody every week, oh, yeah. and I think we've certainly done that and, and have to, of course, share the love for Tarzan. Because I, mm -hmm. we've all been working on that for a very long time as part of the Tarzan Tenniel. Dan, is that your choice, Tarzan? Uh, it, it is my sentimental favorite. Um, John Carter Mars and Tarzan of the Apes were the first two books without pictures I read. Wow. And I've been an Edgar Rice Burroughs fan ever since. And to tie everything up nice and neat, I was making reference to Ethel Merman before, and one of the things people can look forward to in Tarzan Season 2 when we release that toward the end of the year is the unbelievable union of both Tarzan and Ethel Merman in a two-part episode of the second season of the Tarzan Show with Ron Ely entitled Mountains of the Moon. So you can look forward to Tarzan Season 2 later this year, but right now, let's celebrate Tarzan Season 1 and all the other Yay. great things we've got lined up for the fans this okay, week. Okay, well that wraps up this week's edition of the Warner Archive Collection's new release podcast. All of this week's new releases and over a thousand more are available at our website, warnerarchive.com. I'm Matt Patterson with Dan Ferenti and George Feltenstein wishing you a great week. 